Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In his book, Live Not by Lies, Rod Dreher compares the similarities between Soviet communism during the Cold War and America's cultural setting today. In doing so, he unpacks some of the backstory of what were called Russian dissidents. One of these was the family of Bendova. He talks about Camilla, whose husband had organized a Christian political resistance against the Communist Party. He was arrested twice, put in jail, uh, put in prison for four years but continued to stand for the truth and the importance of the people. As he interviews her, he looks around the house and sees these scars on the wall and asks her what they're from. She says, oh, that's where the wires were before we had ripped them out. Yes, she was used to having her house bugged to be surveilled and watched by the Russian government, day in and day out. And so when Rod Dreher talks about Americans and how we actually have devices in our homes, smart speakers that we willingly put in our house to record what we're saying and doing day by day, she laughs a kind of cynical chuckle. Every culture has a current and that current is moving in a certain direction. If you could imagine for yourself going out into the broad river, and let's say it was a low enough uh, depth that you could walk out to the middle, which sometimes of the year you can, and you're standing there in the flow of the water, and at first it's, it's not very strong, you can stand steady, but you get some rain flowing in from the mountains upstream, and pretty soon the, the water level is rising. How long can you withstand that current? Maybe it actually is moving you. You don't even realize it downstream, little bit by little bit. How strong might it be before you can't even go backward? You can simply do all you can to stay in one place. Every culture has a current, and sometimes it starts out very slow, and you hardly even notice its influence on you, but as time goes on, it, it starts to move you, it starts to affect you. In the story from Daniel chapter 3 today, we see how the current of Babylonian culture was flowing strong, so strong that to stand against it meant risking your life. We'll see how Daniel's three friends stand up for the God that they serve and how the God that they serve stands up for them. From Daniel chapter 3, we begin at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar had made a golden image. Its height was 90 feet tall and its width was 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura, the same plain we know as Shinar, dating back to the Tower of Babel. 
The same location where so many of the whole human race had gathered to build a tower where they thought they could reach the heavens and be like gods. So he sets up this golden image there on the plain. And King Nebuchadnezzar calls for all of his leaders. Here the text lists every single position that the king had appointed throughout all of Babylon to come together for this meeting. And he tells them, and he has it read aloud before them all, for all peoples, nations, and languages, you are commanded that when you hear the sound of the national anthem being played, when all of the instruments of the grand national orchestra are gathered together and they play the national anthem, you're to fall down on your face before the golden image of the king. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a burning, fiery kiln, the place where we smelt metals, refine them like gold and silver. You'll be thrown in to burn alive. And so, as soon as all the peoples heard this, and they heard the national anthem being played, all peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that the king had set up. The God you serve is a God also who serves you, but you have to realize that, first of all, God does allow the false images of this world to be placed in our midst. He allows the power of kings to rise up so strong that there are no choices left for you in your life, except one. And God allows such persecution as an opportunity. In Soviet Russia, they called this dissidence. Kind of sounds like the word dissonance, which is a musical word for when the harmony is slightly off and you hear a contrast, a conflict in the music. Well, dissidence is when you hear a disharmony in the people. When there's some kind of a resistance, not an outright protest necessarily, not an outright violent revolution, but it's something in people's lives where they finally say no. And that time came for Daniel's three friends. And so at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. They told King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, grand king, live forever. You have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the national anthem being played with every kind of instrument in your national orchestra shall fall down and worship. And whoever does not shall be thrown into the fire. And we happen to know that there are certain Jews that you have appointed as leaders over the provinces of Babylon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden image that you have set up. 
These are kind of like the secret police. You see, the king has set up a test. The king has set up a test, a loyalty test. It's something like what Caesar did under the Roman Empire when he discovered that Christians were hiding. And he wanted to bring them out of hiding. It wasn't enough to ask these Christians, do you believe in Jesus? They could kind of escape that question, ask for forgiveness later. But there was one tipping point that he knew would prove loyalty, and it was bowing down to statues of the emperor. Throughout history, this has been a test of Christian faith. And here it comes to these three men. You see, the current that they're living in and standing in is trying to pull them downstream, and it's strong. The Babylonian Empire is very sophisticated and accomplished at doing this. It's taken those Jewish refugees from their home, from their people, from their culture, and it's tried to take away everything from them. Think of all the things that Daniel and his friends have lost. They've lost their homeland, they've lost their culture, they've lost their own food, they've lost their own language. The Babylonian university that they were plugged into for three years has taught them everything from A to Z about being a faithful, patriotic Chaldean. Except for one way. There's one thing that they could not take away. So imagine how the world could take away everything from you, even your children. And there's still one thing they can't take away. Because Daniel's three friends know that this king really isn't the true king. When you hear about King Nebuchadnezzar here in the text, what kind of a person do you think he is? Down deep, inside, what kind of a person do you think Nebuchadnezzar is? Well, there's only one way to kind of see him. A man who would feel the need to exercise and demonstrate his power by gathering all his leaders to the capital city. By getting all the musical instruments, and you see how everything is being listed, one after the next after the next, of all these musical instruments and these leaders, and it's repeated and repeated, and then they all are going to bow down to his golden statue. You remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? We studied that last week. He had a dream in which he saw a statue just like this, a golden image. Only, the only golden part was the head. And Daniel interpreted the dream for him, and he told him how the head was golden. It represented King Nebuchadnezzar and his golden kingdom, its superiority over every other kingdom that would follow. And then other parts of this image were made of silver and moving down to bronze, and then all the way down to the feet, which were a mixture of iron and clay. And as you got further down to the foundation of the statue, it became weaker and weaker and weaker. And Daniel said, this is how the kingdoms will follow yours. They will become weaker and weaker and weaker until at last a great rock will come rolling in and smash to bits the whole thing. And that rock is the kingdom of the Most High God. 
you see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He doesn't make his image just of a golden head. He makes the whole thing golden, imagining that he's going to change the future. That the whole kingdom of Babylon is going to be golden from head to toe, and there's going to be no way that anyone is going to stand against him and his plans for control. Everything in this story about Nebuchadnezzar screams grandiose. Have you ever met someone who's grandiose? Have you ever seen that in yourself? Where you portray an image that's bigger than what you really are? Where you cover up insecurities, fears, faults by putting on a show? And so how often does the world put on a show? It tries to make it seem so grand, so Hollywood. From head to toe, it's golden. And we look around us in America, and how often do we see those images? The grandiose attempt to show a power that's greater than God, to control our future, to control our destiny, to decide what's best for every one of us. And really, all it reveals is insecurity in the king. His fear that somehow he will lose control. So he puffs himself up. And these three little Hebrews, who haven't even been in the story so far. I mean, you can imagine these three friends. They're just in the background. They're the backstage doing their job like they're supposed to. How many of you are backstage people who couldn't imagine yourself being in this position? And then all of a sudden God says, nope, today it's going to be you. And he thrusts them onto the center stage with the spotlight. And this is what they say to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we really don't need to answer you. Would any of us say that to the king? But... We will. If it so happens that you throw us into the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery kiln, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he does not, we will still do the same thing and let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. So you see that the test of the king's great false golden image becomes an opportunity for Daniel's friends to demonstrate dissidence, to stand against the false rumors, the lies that are being propagated all around them. God is not only involved allowing this, but he is actually has a purpose in the test that there will come a point for every Christian where God has such a purpose in your life that he will test your allegiance. And right now he's testing the allegiance of these three. It's testing the allegiance to the king. And that is meant in two different ways. And in response... They don't decide what God's outcome will be. 
You remember John the Baptist, and we read earlier how John the Baptist came on the scene preaching a baptism of repentance and remission of sins, and he said, the Messiah is coming. He's greater than me. I can't even tie his shoes. He's so much greater than I am. Well, that same John the Baptist ended up years later being thrown into prison. Why? He was thrown into prison because he spoke up. And he told King Herod that what he was doing was wrong. King Herod had gone about a public affair with another lady that was not his wife. He had divorced his wife and he had committed adultery with another man's wife. And John called this out. He stood up because the moment had come where he couldn't just go along with the flow anymore. He couldn't just allow it to sweep him and everyone else downstream. He stood up for what was right. And he spoke up. And he got him put in prison. And while he was sitting there in that King Herod's dungeon, for so long he started to question, is Jesus really the Messiah or not? He actually sent two of his disciples to go and ask Jesus that very question, are you the one we're waiting for or not? Because even John, under such a test, began to wonder, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the true king, then what is King Herod doing on the throne still? What is King Nebuchadnezzar doing with so much power and control that he's making God's people suffer? What am I doing in a dungeon? God allows you to face these fiery choices. When Rod Dreher was writing about the challenges of a Christian living in Soviet Russia, he said that the real truth of courage is not in your willingness to do something. Courage is not just your willingness to do something that seems big or bold or grand. It's your courage to do something when there's a cost. And it's the cost that determines courage. It's when you have to face a choice that requires a cost. There's a cost to standing up against the current. You can imagine during this Christmas season, people are on their way to get things done. And as they're pouring into stores or lining up at registers, imagine you're on that Black Friday deal where everybody's heading toward the same item at the same time. And halfway down the aisle, you decide you're going to turn around. Is that going to turn out very well for you? You decide, no, wait, wait, everybody, stop, 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 stop. And you try to tell everybody to stop what they're doing and turn around with you. The challenge of this choice, this fiery trial, was much more serious than the little things that we often get tested with. It was life and death. By pledging their allegiance to the true king, the true king was able to demonstrate his allegiance to them. That the God you serve also serves you. The king says, throw them into the fire. And as they throw him in, throw these men in, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar's face became like a fire. 
The word that it uses for his anger, his fury, is the word heat. That he was heated up like the furnace was heated up. And as he got heated up, he stoked the fire seven times hotter than it normally was. Why does a person get so angry? That these three little meaningless Hebrews have no power to do anything to threaten his kingdom. They don't have an army. They don't have weapons. They don't have strength. They're just there doing their daily duty. And he said, and he becomes so angry, it's because down deep he knows that this is the truth of reality. That there is a God who is beyond our control. There is a truth that's beyond our control. And if we don't accept that and submit to it, the anger will boil up. It will become hot within us. He stokes the fire seven times, throws them in, expecting them to burn alive. And it's so hot that even the men who bring them, the guards who throw them in, die because they can't get close enough. And as he looks into the fire, he says, did we not cast three men into the fire, bound hand and foot? And they said to the king, yeah, we did, O king. And he responds, but now I see four men and they're no longer bound and they're walking around in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you, like something strange were happening. There's nothing strange about this. The way that the world gets angry at God and at the truth and at people who stand against the flow of the curtain is nothing new and it's nothing strange. It simply means you're staying loyal to the one who will stay loyal to you. This is an opportunity to place themselves into the hands of the God who will not let them down. And they know he will never let them down. But they don't determine the outcome. They say, if he delivers us and rescues us from the fire, then you will know. And if he doesn't deliver us from the fire and he lets us die, you will still know that we will serve no other God than the God of heaven and earth, our Lord. Every culture has a current. And the culture Jesus lived in has a current, too. Jesus was the greatest dissident the world has ever known. He didn't come out with a revolt and revolution where he told his disciples to take up arms, but neither did he remain silent. In quiet little ways, in teaching his 12, in sending them out with a message of truth, he stood against the flow. That was why the Pharisees could not stand him. He didn't go along with the crowd. And he objected to what they were saying and doing. He objected to Rome. He objected to Jerusalem. And he taught the people the truth. And because of that, he was crucified. 
He was crucified, and in his crucifixion, Jesus demonstrated that he is with us. He's not just with us from his throne in heaven, looking down on us suffering and saying, it'll be okay. He's with us in the fire. He's standing there next to you. He's lived through it all. He's faced every trial, every temptation. He stood against the king and his false image. And he was willing to pay the greatest price for your salvation. Which means that he's still with you because he rose from the dead. His resurrection proves that there is a power greater than King Nebuchadnezzar. That even when they kill God's son, they still can't keep him from winning. And even if they kill you, they take everything away from you, even your life, they still have nothing won. Because the resurrection is yours as well. And the eternal kingdom will last beyond the kingdoms of this world. Daniel chapter 12 ends with that vision of the righteous who shine like the sun and though they're persecuted, though they bleed and suffer and die, wires ripped out of their walls, husbands imprisoned, they take away your job, they don't give you a promotion, whatever it is from top to bottom. I am with you, Jesus says. Terry Mattingly wrote about Rogier's book and said, It didn't matter if the communists had imprisoned her husband. The late Vaclav Benda, a leading Czech dissident and Catholic intellectual. It didn't matter that state officials had bugged their flat near the medieval heart of the city. It didn't matter if a friend showed up after being tortured at the secret police facility a block away. Camilla was a dissident. She kept the family together when the communists put her husband in prison, when Vaclav was tempted by an offer to accept exile in exchange for compromise. She bucked him up to and told him that the things they were fighting for were things worth suffering for, too. Amen.